We're going to return to Revelation 1, continuing in this study. And again, as I have explained, the primary purpose, the design, at least that God has placed on my heart is to not study this, trying to get it all factually correct and all the symbolism figured out. Again, I can give you books that can do that for you very, very well. And and I won't have to bore you to death simply repeating what somebody else has already said. So the point is, as we study, to look for the relevant truth right now, because that is what a revelation is. This is settling over me, trying to comprehend all the fullness of what God's talking about when he said, when he showed me a couple of weeks ago through someone else that sound creates substance. God said, let there be light. He spoke it, and now there's something of substance that you can show for what he just said. So something was illuminated that wasn't lit before. That's revelation. So when we get into this book of revelation, what's happening here? God is speaking. This is a revelation that, he, that is being spoken to Jesus. We get this order already. Given to an angel, delivered then to John on the Isle of Patmos. The means by which John got it. But this revelation was intended to be illumination. For us to be able to see what we hadn't seen before. Not because of history. And not just because of the future. Not just because of prophecy. It was designed to be relevant to you and I right now. So again, that's what we're looking for. What in these passages is relevant to us right now. We ended last time with John's narrative about his own situation that we find in verses 9 and 10. But he tells us when we begin this, what we're going to look at this evening. Now we're going to begin with verse 10b. And this this is the passage. And John says, and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, unto Smyrna, unto Pergamos, unto Thyatira, unto unto Sardis, unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. So he's saying, I want what you're getting. And please note that the number seven in the scripture always denotes numerical completion. He is describing it as, I want this to go everywhere. That number seven brings in this fullness of perfection. I want this message to saturate the story. I want it to go everywhere. Verse 12, and I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the son of man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the palps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as of a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shining his strength. So we begin in that passage, to see the vision of the glorious Christ. Every picture that we see of him now, we see of that which was pictured of him on earth. This picture is now taking John, and and it had to be strange for John because John knew Jesus intimately. He would have recognized immediately the suffering servant, Jesus covered with the countenance of his physical body. 
he would have recognized him immediately. But it was startling, I'm sure, for John to recognize that this was Jesus, but he had in this his heavenly appearance. He was covered in the glory of heaven. So recognizable to John, he knew who it was, but a very, very description being offered in this revelation of someone that he knew very well. It begins by saying that the voice behind him was a trumpet. It was an instrument used for calling people together. Again, it's that shouldn't come as a surprise to us because what does Reveille do? It calls them together. It was God's desire that John's voice, this message, would sound the call to the seven churches that he's about to address. It is a trumpet call to seven churches. Now, again, remember that number seven is so key in this because it's a perfect number. It it is all-inclusive. There's not anyone that was to be missed with this message. The sight that he saw was of the seven golden candlesticks. Now, we know that those are lampstands. They weren't candles with a wick. There wasn't such a thing as at the time. And we know, based on the explanation that we're very specifically given, that these seven candlesticks or these seven lampstands are the seven churches that just got listed. We don't even have to wonder about the symbolism there. We're told a little bit later. What I want us to get as far as relevant truth right now about us is that the churches are still functioning in God's full view right now. This isn't designed to be written to seven churches that existed then, and there's only one of those that even possibly still exist or is in proximity. But what he's telling us is that we function right now as his church under his full review because we begin to recognize There should be a spiritual reality and thereby illuminating a dark world by this presence of the light of God. However, these lamps cannot give out light unless what? Now we're not, again, we're talking lamps, not candles. What will be required, don't miss this, what will be required if that light is going to shine? It has to have oil in it. What's the problem? I'm becoming even more bold in my statements about this as the the Lord brings the conviction. What happens when we tolerate and fail to move when we recognize that a church that we're a part of has no desire to let the Holy Spirit rule? We become complicit in this story. And I want to tell you there's great accountability because what makes what we do pleasing to God There's only one way for what we do to be pleasing to him. Who has to do it? He does. The accountability for this. What happens when God looks and we get to read later about his critique of the seven churches. We get to read about them losing their first love. We get to read about what's happening in those seven churches that are being reviewed by Jesus in this story. And he finds them lacking. And he says, I wish I could spew you out of my mouth because of the mediocrity of which you're functioning. We have accepted mediocrity. I shared with you all on Sunday morning from the movie Amadeus. And again, quite a story. Solieri is determined when he recognizes that the genius of Mozart was not just that he was brilliant at what he did. There was no explanation for it except it was a gift of God. He was jealous and determined to cause Mozart to believe that he was nothing special. And he did it. He was very successful at it. He broke him. 
Because what God wanted was for Mozart to realize that what you're seeing happen is because of me. What would Satan want us to believe? That what's happening is because of us. I wonder how it sounds to God, even in our testimonies, when we say something like, well, God's been mightily using me. I don't like saying that about myself. It's like I, I want God to get all the glory, but I want, I, I want that last piece of credit to come to me. I think, no, it's God or it's nothing. The examination of what's going on, and I, I do believe, truly believe, that the churches are under God's view right now. As I've shared many times, I live with all the joy of my life. I live a bit heartbroken because of the vision God gave me of the lost people sitting in churches who with absolute confidence believe they're saved, but have never had an encounter with God because they refuse to acknowledge the work of the Holy Spirit. And there is no salvation without it. So in the midst of the candlesticks, it says there was one like the son of man. Now again, why would John say that? Because he doesn't look like the son of man that John knew. He knows who it is, but he doesn't look. His countenance is different. So what was he doing in the middle of them? Again, we don't even have to wonder about this. We get to read it. We get to watch it unfold. He was inspecting them. He was looking at them, considering them, observing them, inspecting those seven churches. To me, the relevant truth again is that that inspection continues. To some, he calls out with words like he finds in Malachi chapter 1, verse 10. Here's what he says. Who is there among you that would shut the doors? What was his conclusion? He said, I watch you. You bring the awful sacrifice. You bring the rotted meat. He says, try doing what you're doing to me. Try to offer that to the governor of the land and see what happens. But you're trying to bring that stuff to me. And he says to them at this point, I wish I could find somebody that would close the doors of this place. That was his inspection. And he goes on and says, neither do you kindle fire on my altar for naught. I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord of hosts. Neither will I accept an offering at your hand. That's a really serious inspection. That when he observed that church in Malachi, he says, I would just rather close the door than to see what I'm actually seeing. His appearance after this, I mean, when John sees him in the midst of the candlesticks, this is when we begin to get a glimpse of what Jesus, what he actually saw when he was observing him. So he's giving the description in in very vivid terms. He was clothed with a garment down to the foot. So this signifies the Lord's glory as was evident before his coming. It tells of him that this garment down to the foot speaks of him being a priest and the king. And gird about the breast with a golden girdle. This tells of his righteousness and his faithfulness as both priest and king. And his head and his hair were white as wool, white as snow, telling of, of the glory. This is from Proverbs sixteen thirty one, Proverbs twenty twenty nine, And it tells of his holiness, according to Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. Again, most of this symbolism We're talking about, it's not the symbolism that Jesus used in his parables because it's the symbolism of heaven. So when we look at Daniel and we look at these other places, the symbolism is what was actually being seen in heaven. His eyes were as a flame of fire. The fire is used for proving, 1 Peter 1, 7, so that whatever is good or bad might be evident. 
the eyes will expose everything of the nature of these churches. 1 Corinthians 3, 13, again, very familiar passage when Paul is addressing who should be the leader within the church at Corinth because they're arguing about whether it should be Paul or whether it should be Apollos. And, and Paul in chapter 3 addresses this. You're arguing over something that doesn't matter. He said, one has planted, the other one waters. You're trying to find something that's not really there. And he does it in 1 Peter chapter 3. This is where we read about every man's work will be tried by fire, whether it be of gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, or stubble. Verse 13 talks about our work being exposed. He's talking about that in the regards to these churches. It's the searching intensity of his judgment. It's hard to completely get this in our mind about what it would be like for Jesus' eyes to be searching through our life. What would it be like if that, if that was literally going on in this moment, that Jesus was staring you in the face and you realized that he has the ability in those eyes to review the entirety of your story? This is the intensity of what John is seeing. And it says, and his feet like unto burnished brass, walking judgment within the church. And his voice as the voice of many waters, Psalm 29, 4, the voice is full of majesty and power. And he had in his right hand seven stars, which are the angels, are messengers of the seven churches. Since they are in his right hand, they are being protected and guarded by him. This particular verse has argument from one end to the other about who are these messengers. Are they angels of heaven, which are told about? Are they the angels that were messengers to the earth? Well, when you actually study this in, in some depth, you recognize that there's real problems with either one of those. It actually sounds more like that these are spokesmen, human spokesmen, messengers for each of these churches, and they're being protected. Human messengers. The reason why that's believed is because you couldn't correct or give that instruction to angels of heaven because they weren't responsible. You couldn't do it for the angels who were messengers. The really the only people that this fits to is actual human messengers of the church. Verse the eighth piece. And out of his mouth proceeded a sharp two-edged sword, which is capable of dealing with the world as well as the church. Where else do we hear of a two-edged sword, sharper than any two-edged sword? What does that two-edged sword have the ability to do? Separate, Separate the spirit and the soul. So what would, what would be happening in this moment as he inspects these churches? And remember, it says here that that two-edged sword says he has the ability to deal with the world and with the church. But he's only inspecting churches. So what's the relevant truth? That the church is full of the world, and it is not pleasing to God. Uh, you don't have to go very far. I'm not offering this as criticism. I did it for many years myself. Why in the world would a church have a budget? What's the purpose? Why does a business have one? So they can plan according to the money that comes in, so that they won't overspend in any category. When Dr. Brown was trying to raise funds for his time in Africa, in Namibia, 
He kept running into churches, church after church after church, small ones and large ones. He'd go and present. And the answer would be, we don't have that built into our mission's budget. Like, well, ask, maybe the individuals want to do it. Maybe we break from that category and say, you know, maybe somebody's heart is compelled. They would not let him present because it was not in the mission's budget. That was a story over and over and over. From He was here. He, he went back to his home church in Pennsylvania. Same story. That's what a budget will do. It has no desire to let you expand. It has every ability to create a limit. Where did that get started? I don't really think I can find that in the scripture. Certainly, I understand stewardship. How do we find that? Again, how do we find denominations in the scripture? Where does that come from? That's just the world saying, I can't get along with you, so I would rather create a category where I can fit that makes me happy about me. So we recognize we're not lost in this story. That that two-edged sword has got an ability to determine what's, func- what's actually happening in the spirit in churches and what's happening in the soul in churches. One pleasing, one, he says, I'd just soon spit you out of my mouth. These are serious realities spoken, not to those seven churches. Again, this is where we're missing it. This is why we, we dismiss that because, yes, we'll go to a church or two and say, yeah, we're, we're lukewarm as well. That's, no, God is inspecting us, looking for those hearts, looking, you know, according to Second Chronicles, the eyes of the Lord look to and fro across the face of the earth, looking for those whose hearts are perfect toward him. Why is he searching for a perfect heart? What does it take to have a perfect heart? What are the first words of a person who has a perfect heart? What has to come out of their mouth first? I can't. Why? Because if they think they can, they will. The perfect heart requires that I say before God, I can't, but you never asked me to. So I'm going to let you do in me and through me what I have no chance of doing in the first place. He's searching for those men and women, boys and girls who have perfect hearts. I think that's Second Chronicles like 14, 9, but I am guessing. I know it's in one of those books of the Old Testament, so you can look around and you can find that. I hadn't quoted that in a long time, so it's kind of lost back there somewhere. Correctly dividing soul and spirit. The ninth thing about his countenance, it was as the sun shines his strength. It was also evident on the Mount of Transfiguration. That same picture was seen in Matthew 17, verse 2. So we begin then with verse 17, the Lord's commission. I want to be, I'll begin at 17 through 20. And John said, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars, which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven candlesticks. The seven stars, as it says right here, are the angels of the seven churches, or the messengers, and the seven candlesticks, which you saw, are the seven churches. So again, we don't have to wonder about that symbolism. He's 
kind enough to just clear it up for us right there. You're seeing the churches and you're seeing the messengers and I'm standing in the middle of them holding those messengers in my right hand. The right hand always depicts strength, protection. So his appearing, as certainly could be anticipated, came with this great commission, just as it did in his first advent. As familiar as John was with Jesus, and as intimate a friend as he has been, he could not stand in his presence. Couldn't do it. He said, I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. This is the same John who loved Jesus and whom Jesus loved. It was on John, I think, that Jesus leaned. These were as intimate as two men could be as friends who had walked together. And when John saw him in this splendor, he couldn't stand. I wish, even starting with children, we could somehow teach them about what all there is or there should be in us as we stand in the presence of God. That we ought to be able to recognize that in us is sown the very fabric of this relationship, that it's a very natural desire, but it has been almost removed from the story. John, even knowing Jesus as intimately as he did, he couldn't stand. How strange the day when so many who are carnal, now remember carnal is a believer, functioning though as if they were lost, not having the spiritual relationship. Yes, they're believers. Yes, they've trusted him. Yes, they've handed their life to God. But the day-to-day living, the sanctification, they're living as if they knew none of it, still trusting themselves instead of the Spirit of God. So how strange today when so many who are carnal claim to know him will be overwhelmed in the moment, as was John. However, many will cry to the mountains, it says, to hide them. Revelation 6, Luke 21. How do we know this is speaking of believers? Because the lost can't see what they're seeing. And according to John 3, 3, the lost can't see this. We're seeing, recognizing that these are believers. These are people who know him and they can't stand in his presence. He says, and he laid his right hand upon me saying, fear not. His glory did not diminish his mercy and it never will. The glory that John was seeing did not alter God, Jesus himself, reaching and touching John and saying, fear not. You know, that had to sound familiar to John. He was in the upper room after Jesus had been crucified. He was up there alarmed with the rest of them when Jesus entered in the room. And what did he tell them first? Fear not. It's me. You don't have to be afraid. The hand that on earth once touched a sick person, we recognize touches still. It hadn't changed. The word that once comforted many broken hearts, yet speaks and still comforts. His hand and his word continue to give comfort and strength. It has not changed, even though he's seen in his glory. He says, I have with me the keys of hell and death. Death relates to the physical body. And as Hades speaks of and is related to the soul. You know, we have to get this clear again that there's not a single time in the Bible, not even once, when the Bible uses the word hell that is speaking of the lake of fire. Have to get that out of our thinking. For the most part, the Christian world thinks when it says hell, it's talking about the lake of fire. Again, not a single time 
in the scripture that that word hell means the lake of fire. Because we read in Revelation 19 and beyond 20 that death and hell, that word Hades, death and hell are cast into the lake of fire. It's telling us of something totally, totally different. So we have to know a little bit. If this is going to make sense, we have to know a little bit about what happens at death. And you've heard me teach this many times, so I will be very brief. That the teaching of of Hades in the Old Testament, the word is actually Sheol. It's the same thing, but it's a different, because it's Hebrew versus Greek. The word in the Old Testament is the word Sheol when you read the word hell. It's also still speaking of a place of death. The people who died in the Old Testament, their spirit would go to be with the Father, but their body would be in the grave, but their soul went to Hades. Why? Very simple answer. Because the scripture says that the blood of bulls and the blood of goats had no permanent ability to deal with sin. So it would have been asking them still in a sinful state to be allowed into the presence of the Father. Couldn't happen. So they were there, according to the scripture, waiting on that sacrifice to be made. So again, we know when Jesus said to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. That wasn't heaven. That was Sheol or or Hades. Why was he going there? He was going there to tell those who had waited so long that the price has now been paid. Your sin has now been completely dealt with. Expiation versus propitiation. Your sin has been completely dealt with. And it says he took those who were captive He took them captive and took them to the third heaven. So today we know what happens to us when we die. Our spirit and our soul go to be with the Father. And our body will someday be raised with the resurrection body. And we will be complete again. So there's powerful truth in what he's describing. He holds the keys of death and hell. So he instructs John to write. I want you to write about what you have seen. The past. I want you to write about the things that are present things that are going on right now, and I want you to deride of the things which shall come to pass the future. Just love the way that he ends this chapter. I am he that lives and was dead. I wish that we, again, this is Randy's heart. I watch so many things. I have the great privilege as a pastor, and again, I, I hope all pastors have this. I'm afraid they don't. I have the great privilege of sitting in my office week after week. When someone comes in, They're coming in in the terms of hopeless and helpless, describing things that are dead and watching God bring them to life. I have a great privilege of getting to see that just on and on and on and on. If Jesus says my nature is bringing things from totally dead to totally alive, what could be so hopeless, what could be so lost that the breath of Christ couldn't change the story? That's why we ought to be the happiest people in the world. That's why when we go out of here, we ought to be telling a story. So many places, every place that says, I don't care what your situation is. I don't care how bad it is. If you're willing to put yourself before the presence of God, then God can heal what nobody else could imagine. I know that that's uh, difficult when one person is ready and the other person isn't. But your life before God, recognizing his ability to do it, then his faith in it is exactly what he's seeking. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and death.